I couldn't tell you who Ireland's starting central midfield is, but I'd be surprised if Wes wasn't good enough. How secure is Koeman? He's as secure as a cobweb in the wind. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The OTB Podcast Network. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. And you're welcome back to Off The Ball here on News Talk. John Duggan sitting in. For John Malloy until 7, time now for the Sunday Paper Review. We're delighted to be joined by George Hamilton, RTTV commentator, Lyric FM presenter and the voice of the boys in green and the broadcaster and accredited sports psychologist, Maura Chasa Nikali. Uh, let's go through the back pages, uh, the broad sheets, um, the front page of the Sunday Times. So crunch time. Um, match off as another Wexford hurler has COVID uh, this Wexford Kilkenny game which is off today and crunch time advantage Chelsea and Liverpool in the final fight for Champions League spots uh, that is the, the uh, Sunday Times sport uh, we have as well uh, on the front page of the S- Sunday Independent Sports section tips final flourish uh, Guardiola on the hunt as well for fresh strike force so Kane a target as departing Aguero leaves big boots to fill and a blistering finish sees Premier Edge Galway. That is in the front page of the Sunday Independent Sport. What else we got here? The Sunday Mirror. Kane or Haaland? Pep. This is obviously the transfer uh, discussions we're going to have now over the next uh, few months. Kane or Haaland? Pep. Uh, City boss admits new striker is his number one priority and he knows who fits the bill. So wait and see how that transpires. Bruno Dilana, also a deal for Bruno Fernandes at Manchester United, is expected. Um, this is uh, in the kind of the style of que sera, sera, go Salah, Salah, whatever will be, will be, as Mo is going to go, even if Liverpool qualify for the Champions League. Doesn't really kind of um, ring to it, does it? But uh, yeah, the Sunday World reporting that Mo Salah wants to leave Liverpool. That's the back page there. Uh, we have, once again, more stories about Harry Kane. 30 Harry, Pep, I'd love a goal machine. Uh, that is in the back of the sun and below that flirty Harry Man used three lions to charm Kane so the battle between City and United for Harry Kane if he does leave Tottenham Hotspur we were heard there in the news about the story about um, supporters back at matches 30,000 crowd for finals at Croke Park so it is thought by the time the All-Ireland hurling and football finals take place on August 22nd and 29th up to 30,000 fans will be able to attend watch this space I think a long way to go before we can see the happening but obviously we're moving in the right direction Vieira goes in hard again Arsenal legend reveals his dismay at club's decline and backs X 1.8 billion takeover this is Daniel Ek the Spotify founder and his uh, attempt to uh, gain control of Arsenal and Murphy may miss the rest of the league with an injury that is Michael Murphy who went off with a hamstring problem yesterday and then we have the back of the star I think this story is not strong but Chelsea scare of FA charge Chelsea facing the prospect points deduction after once again being charged with the FA that's not going to happen but what was more interesting for me at the, at the start was the actual front page there's people on the pitch this is Clive Tilsley uh, the ITV commentator um, voice football Clive Tilsey reckons swearing on air would give the game extra street cred. Uh the television legend 66 says commentators should be allowed one F word per season sometimes it's the only adjective that really works and just to go on to expand on that uh, I've often thought the commentators should be allowed one F word per season uh, sometimes it's the only adjective that really works in football we would be trusted to use it wisely like a cricket captain manages his umpire challenges but uttered at the right moment for the right incident the occasional profane outburst would give football commentary some renewed street cred George Hamilton you're the perfect person to discuss <laughs> this story in the star this afternoon have you ever dropped an F-bomb by mistake? Uh, fortunately not no um, I think the, the thing is when you kind of uh, put a microphone to your lips and you put a pair of headphones on 
uh, you don't tend to uh, have the same mindset as you would say if you were sitting in the stand. And to be quite honest with you, it may come as a surprise to you to think it, but um, all these years of commentating have left me feeling somewhat uh, unempowered when I sit in the stand, and it takes a bit to get me going in a crowd, uh, simply because I'm aware that uh, people might be hearing what I'm saying. I, I think it's just got, got in on me a bit. But I, I was amused to see that story about Clive as a guy I know well, and I would never imagine him coming out with something like that. I just think he's got his tongue firmly in his cheek yeah. when he says that. And, and there's a good yarn there about Bill Shankly, uh, which uh, is in the same piece um, where he's uh, talking about commentating for Radio City where he started off in Liverpool uh, and they were playing Nottingham Forest. They were beaten 2-0 in the, uh, in the was it a cup match they were? Anyway, Gary Bertel scored the opening goal in what was his second senior appearance. Oh, can you believe it? I wailed to a despairing audience back on Merseyside. A week ago, we'd never even heard of him, Bill Bill Shankly, the Liverpool ex-manager uh, sitting beside him. Shanks thought for a second, placed the microphone onto his top lip, and then opened his mouth and his heart. You've ever heard of him now, he roared. Yeah. <laughs> and Clive says we didn't receive a single complaint, not one. I kind of always regret that I never kind of experienced the Bill Shankly. Um, I was too young to to know what he was all about. Um, yeah. but we, we don't consciously, though, uh, use bad language. It's all subconscious, isn't it, uh, Mauritrasa? So... Um, if you're going to start bringing it in, where, where does it end? Well, this is it, and I think it's subconscious for some people, it's very conscious for others. But I don't know if you saw Ireland or Holland had a documentary in RTE about two weeks ago about Ireland swearing and how we swear and what we say to people and um, how it comes out. And actually, it could be a sign of intelligence. And as somebody who's often known to drop the commentary when I'm watching my favourite team and things don't go the way they want, this is why I could never do commentary. And Tommy Welch would attest to this. There have been times that he's holding on to his clingy. I don't even use words. I don't know how George does how he does. I just make noises and I panic and I close my eyes. It's, it's a skill, it's a gift of commentary. I don't have it, but I tell you if I did, the air would be deep. <laughs> um, where do you want to start, George? I think obviously the final day of the Premier League season. It's leading us on to the yeah. topic of all these back page stories about uh, strikers moving during the season. And, and the topic of yeah. goal scorers is, is going through a few of the newspapers yeah. today. Yeah. Uh, Eamon Sweeney on the back of the Sunday Independent, he's, he's always a great read. And he goes on about the two boys, uh, Kane, Harry Kane and Mo Salah, who he says have been let down by their respective clubs. Um, and Mo Salah's 1995 goals only rivaled by Harry Kane's 87. And he talks about what... Uh, Strikers are, are so invaluable, really. Um, there's another story then in The Observer about the fact that there are no centre-forwards going to be on show in the Champions League, man, but that's that's something else. Uh, he, he goes on to Eamon, goes on to say, Spurs lie eight, despite possessing a player who's joint top scorer and leading assist provider, and another who's joint third in those charts, a remarkable achievement. Even the best can only bring a team so far. You know, th this is the thing. It's, it's strikers on the move it has been encouraged by the way the teams have performed uh, this season, both Liverpool and Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, and and it's, it's funny about Tottenham because the Vieira story uh, where he puts the boot in, he says uh, it's time that there was a change of ownership at Arsenal. He's alluding to the fact that Arsenal have gone off the boil since they left Highbury. Uh, Tottenham have just moved into their new stadium and they can't seem to get it together. And it, without Harry Kane for them and without Mo Salah for Liverpool, uh, they'd both be in the doldrums. But Liverpool have somehow found themselves back in a Champions League contention. Uh, Tottenham, though not, uh, maybe not even in any European uh, competition next season. So uh, Eamon is making the point that these strikers are, are so valuable. 
Uh, and the other piece in the observer, the point is made that maybe you don't need a striker to score if he can do the kind of movement that lets others in to do it. So it's it's a, a bit of a conundrum as to as to what a striker is actually worth at this stage. But I think the fellow who puts the ball, ball on the back of the net surely has to be worth a lot. And players like Salah and Harry Kane, you know, if their teams aren't doing it, uh, well, then maybe they should be off elsewhere. There's going to be an arms race, I think, George, for um, these these strikers like Kane and Haaland and Mbappe and, and obviously the clubs like uh, United. Their owners are not popular. They're going to want to make popular decisions, not only yeah. to get all the fans off their back, but for the share price as well. Absolutely. And I think so, somebody like Salah or somebody like Harry Kane, I mean, I, I was astonished. At, uh, I never really thought about it, but Eamon Sweeney, Eamon Sweeney points out, uh, Harry Kane at the age of 27 has never played on a trophy-winning team. At 27, striker in his prime. Does he want to go through his career and maybe doing something with England, but never actually having won a trophy uh, with his club? I, th- that's the kind of thing that, that, that encourages a striker to say, hey, I want to go somewhere else. And I think he'd be a perfect fit for either of the top two at the moment, City or United. Uh, he, he, he knows how to play that that role that Guardiola so prizes. Uh, and at Manchester United, well, uh, they used to have Ronaldo play in that role before he became an out-and-out centre-forward. Uh, so uh, either of those would be the perfect fit. Uh, and m- my tip would be, though I know nothing other than what I observe, is that he will be off to Manchester at the end of the season. As for Mo, I think Mo will stay on. Champions League will keep him at Liverpool. Yeah, there's a Jonathan Wilson's piece. It's intriguing that both are likely to go into the final as the Champions League final with a false nine, probably Kevin De Bruyne or Bernardo Silva for City and Kai Havertz for Chelsea. Uh, that has become mainstream. It was a thing that maybe the Barcelona were the exponents of. But you've got all these matches over the years, George. Like To me, it doesn't really matter who what, what the style or the tactics are as long as you've exciting football and goals. But have oh, yeah. you enjoyed more, one more than the other, the traditional striker versus the, the false nine? Um, well, seeing the way Guardiola's style has developed uh, and the way it is with Manchester City this season, who are who are lovely to watch, I contrast that with a decade ago when Spain were taking all before them by passing teams to death and boring the pants off everybody and scarcely scoring a goal, but winning everything. And Barcelona were a bit like that too at the time. But Guardiola has evolved into a manager that now that has a team that doesn't have an out-and-out centre-forward but still manages to... Uh, play attractive football uh, that punishes the opposition uh, and brings the, the success that he's had, the record-breaking success that he's had. So it's, it's, not, it's not a case of one or the other, I don't think. I mean, you see Messi in his prime playing for Barcelona, and, and that's something else. Uh, Chelsea under Tuchel, another one, you know, uh, who have a, an interesting way of setting up. Uh, do they go with uh, Timo Werner, who tends to go off to the left? And then come charging in, or they have Kai Havertz, who plays further back, uh, again in that kind of false nine role. I think the Champions League final is going to be an intriguing match, a, a, a bit cagey to begin with, but then I think one of them is going to cut loose, uh, just depending on, on what kind of form they're in on the night. Um, but uh, you, to answer your question, which I've gone around the houses to get to, uh, neither neither or an or. I, I, I love them both. Um, I grew up with with centre forwards. My dad was a centre forward, and I was always looking at the centre forwards. Uh, and of course, through the 60s and 70s, centre forwards were king. But now, with so much more about the game of football, so much science that goes into it, you see why it's evolved the way it has. And I think when it's played at its very best, I mean, even look at Leicester last week in the FA Cup final. I mean, that was terrific too. I just want to update you, folks, that. Um... Dublin now league carry by two goals and two points to six points at Semple Stadium in that league match in that Division 1 South match. Con O'Callaghan and Cormac Costler with the goals for the Dubs. This is a fascinating development, Moritrasa. A lot of, uh, obviously, newsprint around the Dubs and Kerry today. I think your favourite one was in the Daily Mail. 
Yeah, and actually there's another good one as well in the Irish Sun. I tell people if they were looking for a paper to read to go down memory lane. Uh, Jason Byrne has a great one talking to Shane Ryan and his memories. But Mark O'Shea has a great piece today in the Mail as well. And the headline is what caught me. So Tomás lost the canopy and the air turned blue. Now, in Connemara, we'll often say Holshan canopy. And I didn't realise this was a phrase that translated down to Kerry Irish as well and has now been anglicised here. But literally it means you've just completely lost the head. And he's just describing him sitting, watching a match with his father. And even if the match was on mute and if he was blind, if he if he was deaf, he'd still know each time Tomás or, or Dara was on the ball because his father would have the kick kind of into the back and knee would press involuntarily into me as he kicked enough ball for the two of them. And he's just describing it building up and his father getting more anxious. And then it gets to it. You know, this is, of course, the big match 20 years ago. And then it happened close to the end. And with one foot already in the semi-final against Meath, Tomás loses the canopy and comes up with the kind of strike that, in less tolerant jurisdictions, might have led to a custodial sentence. But Pat McEnany settled for a straight red card. Tomás had not made it as far as the line. I already done the numbers in my head and came up with an answer that made me giddy. Jesus, if Tomás misses the semi, I will be in the match day panel, I suggested to my father, whose head was already buried in his hands at the consequences of one son's loose fists, when then another's loose tongue doubled his despair. The air turned as blue as the swaths of terrace that housed the hill on tour that afternoon, where he offered me some advice. If you tell Tomás that, the only thing you'll be making this week is the funeral home he wrote. Now, I mean, you can see it, you can hear it, you can see the rage, you can hear the rage. Poor Mark <laughs> O'Shea trying to find a silver lining in an otherwise dark cloud. <laughs> but I don't think he found it. But it just goes to show there's a... We love nostalgia. And I think this week, maybe even we may have felt, you know, a time for nostalgia because there's so many other matches going on. But Dublin Kerry's been intriguing. Even there, you had to update us. We all want to know what's happening in it. Um, it's just uh, it's amazing how the more things change, the more they stay the same, isn't it? It's also amazing how serene people can have personality transplants when they go into a ground and become different people. Yeah, and like George has obviously trained that out of himself, but most of us aren't that good. (laughs) But I mean, I have seen people who are very serene, like you said, outside and then lose themselves. We all know the local man when he goes to a match or the local woman who will lose the absolute run of themselves. And like Mark says here, lose the canopy. And then it's like they've forgotten. It's They have to kind of go through this psychological process when they leave that they won't even remember that kind of behavior. And they would accuse them of behavior. They'd say, oh, no, not at all. It's it's weird. It's That's the soul of sport. And that's why it happens, I suppose. It lets us get our rage and emotions out. Because as a grown-up, you're not allowed to scream and shout anywhere else, really, are you? It's also interesting that he's pointing towards memories with his dad and... I know myself, my best memories of my late father, like going to Clare, uh, Tipperary and Clare against Offaly 95, 97 and seeing them win the All-Ireland. And these things are tattooed on the soul of anybody who's shared an experience, whether it's uh, frenzied or manic or if you win or you lose with with a loved one. Oh, yeah. And um, like one of my treasured memories with my own family is 1996, the day uh, my own club at home, won the senior county final in County Galway. And it was my first ever pitch invasion. I was like very young, I was a child, and it was the one day that we were allowed to go absolutely nuts. There was no there was no quotas on Coke, there was no quotas on seven up, everything was in glass bottles with a straw, they were chock full of potatoes and crisps, and we were going around getting photos with the team. And I just remember seeing everyone being so happy and all of us as a unit. It was the first day trip the family went out on. They went up and down to tune without one row, without one fight, without my dad saying, If you guys don't shut up, I'm gonna turn this car right around. And Carol won as well. And it's 
actually coming up to geez, 25 years of that now and it still feels like yesterday and aren't they the great days you know we don't get enough of them and I think maybe I remember Serena Williams actually saying she never celebrated the wins as much as she thought about the losses and maybe that's a life lesson to us all we should be holding on to these moments be it through sport or the arts or whatever that brings you with the people that you love and gets you to go out and feel something you don't feel every day that should be celebrated George you've seen all the best moments can you park you have to park though your your inner fan do you because obviously the professionalism has to take over have you only been able really to let loose when you've been at games and not working uh, yes I suppose that's true though you, uh, bear in mind if, it, if it's the national team that you're commentating on uh, you're not exactly uh, 50-50 down the middle and, and if it's against England and they happen to score uh, you are entitled to have a little bit of uh, emotional involvement there uh, but yes it, it, it is I think it's a it's a different kind of emotion that you experience uh, when you're lucky enough to be involved in the broadcast in that way. Um, and yes, it would be true if, if I go with a pal uh, to watch a match and sit in the stand. Uh, I can shout and roar, and uh, I will. Uh, but it takes a while to get me going, and I generally need a little bit of encouragement from from him, uh, my, my pal, to to uh, to encourage me to start shouting. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was off the couch last Saturday afternoon when Leicester City scored the goal, and I had no vested interest in the match. Uh, but I did jump up, and again, I was with my pal watching it in the house, having a beer, and it was just, it's its wonderful in those moments. And I can see how much better it would be if, if, if I had been able to have an emotional involvement. But the very, you know, when he scored that goal, it was just astonishing. And, and as I say, I was on my feet, roaring, because it was so good. Yeah, absolutely, and, and very cathartic to see the fans there. And it was a, it was a great moment. Oh, it, was, yeah. it was like the moment yeah. almost that sport came back in my mind. Um, that's very very good way of putting it, John. That's exactly it. Yeah, after all we've been through over the last fifteen months, mm. um, it, it's it's interesting. Uh, like the issue of anthems, uh, I, I was reading Michael Foley today in the uh, the Sunday Times, and that's another thing that stirs emotions, uh, Maura Trassa, and I thought it was a good piece. Oh, yeah, it was a great piece. And I think it's also a good example of where we are as a country. And hopefully we might start, you know, seeing less of what the neighbours are doing and the curtain twitching as now life starts getting back to normal. Like, because his introduction is brilliant where he talks about it's nearly worthy of a book all by itself. The wild mix of letters that lands into the GAA's front offices every year, seeking the GAA's stance on everything from national unity to the price of stamps, to the urgent need to teach inter-county players how to march properly in a pre-match parade. So it seems the latest thing that has been the ire of the GAA's complaints department is that players weren't standing to attention appropriately up to the end of the Irish anthem and anyone who has attended any uh, match in Gaelic games has been familiar over the years when there's a crowd that once the or on the vein reaches that crescendo somebody has to break it by shouting on or roaring on their own team and then the players will start jumping or squatting or whatever this is not appropriate apparently and now obviously the edict has been there but this has moved on now and Michael Foley saying well do we have to play it at every match? Why are we playing it? And I mean, there have been some abysmal renditions of anthems up and down the country and around the world, as I'm sure George can attest to. But even me, I remember a few years ago being at the Fenway Classic over in Boston and an American singer, a fabulous singer, beautiful baritone, decided he was going to sing over on the vein, which of course made us all sit up to a bit of attention. You know, this would be amusing or interesting at the very least. But he gave it the full Star Spangled Banner treatment. And you could see the players who was Galway and Dublin, they were... They were trying to sing along to their anthem, obviously probably feeling we possibly really should really sing out loud. We're in Fenway Park in Boston. Nobody could. And he gave it the big treatment at the end up to the big crescendo. And <laughs> I just remember he finished and he got a massive cheer from people because we never heard it played this way. But I mean, Mick goes on and 
you know, it's a good it's a good thing here. Do you remember a few years ago the amount of abuse that was rained down on Aegon O'Farrell and Mick mentions it here when Aegon said, Well, you know, maybe we'll have to look at maybe playing the anthem in future if we're trying to be inclusive as a sport and if the anthem gets in the way of that, why not at least look at it? And you can see why that triggered people a lot. George, you must have had um interesting experiences over yeah. many years in many countries of the anthem being out of tune or it's uh, well. It's uh, there are some places you'd go. Um, I'm thinking particularly of uh, a rugby match in Rome, say, or a rugby match in in Paris, uh, where they. Now this is in the days when Ireland Levine was played at, at away games, as opposed to Ireland's call, as it is now at Ireland away rugby matches. Uh, but the the bands uh, that they have, the military band in Rome and the military band in in uh, in, in Paris, uh, it, it, it's just a start. They never put a note wrong. Uh, and it was really stirring to hear them play. But yes, you go to somewhere else, and I won't name names because I want to protect the innocent, but uh, there have been a few venues where the local band has had, uh, shall we say, uh, some difficulty with the Irish anthem, and they might have been better playing it, uh, not with it by a band, but uh, off a disc. <laughs> there you go. But it, it is it is interesting, isn't it, that uh, the, the, the piece that Michael wrote, I, I find it fascinating, and I, I understand every point of view in this, um, my only observation would be if something happens every time, it loses something of its uniqueness. Yes. And um, it, 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 when the anthem is played uh, at, a, at a major occasion, you know you're somewhere special. Um, and, and the Aviva or Croke Park and are on the V, and it's just it, it's emotionally lifting before a game. Uh, and if it's played at every game, at every hole in the hedge, it, it, it kind of, the, the specialness of it is 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 not quite the same, um, and that would be my only observation on it. Uh, it, it, it it is a a part of a national occasion, um, and so I think it should be reserved for the national occasion. But you could make the counter argument then, as well as saying the fact that it is played before every match in Gaelic games is what makes it unique and special as well. So you can totally see why some people are going to be welded yeah. onto this and won't let it go and will not let go of a cold cold, white, dead yeah. fingers, no way. The anthem is untouchable to some people, which this I can is, understand as well, because it's part of the day experience. Yeah, this is this is the point I was making, Mara Tressa. I, I, I can see every side of this yes. argument, um, uh, and it's impossible uh, to actually say that what I have uh, put forward uh, should necessarily be the way to do it. And that's only my view. Um, but equally, and you've just done it, have told me why that shouldn't be the case. Oh, well, don't get me wrong. I, I, I'm all for the tunes. Like, I was at the athletic grounds last night in Armagh, and only a shame there wasn't fans in there because they were playing great music for the 45 minutes before any ball was thrown in. And I was at the Gaelic grounds two weeks ago, and they played over on the V, and obviously there's no bands inside at the moment. They were just playing it off. Uh, look, to be honest, it probably was a CD or something because it tri right at the end it began to trip and skip. <laughs> and, uh, it, was, it created this kind of area where the lads were thinking, we're not supposed to move. We've reached the end yeah. of this, but um, you know, this is tripping here. So what are we going to do here? So it creates the sense yeah. of awkwardness and a ripple of laughter throughout the grounds. Out of all of us who are in there, probably what maybe seventy-five people in the whole thing. But I tell you one yeah. thing: it'd be a brave person who decides if a change is going to be made, if they're going to make it. I think selectivity oh, is important, yeah. and I think meaning is important. Uh, the mo I was very emotional seeing the helicopter go over 
Krog Park last December when Limerick were about to play Waterford in the All-Ireland Hurling final there was nobody there but you just knew the whole country is watching this and the anthems then played and you're like the shiver down the spine but the, select- the selectivity I think is important and just for the sake of it I mean even the tradition in bars around the country of sometimes where at, at, at like a closing time everybody stands up and there's the national anthem and you go what, what's this? Uh, yes. So, so uh, yeah. I, I, something I've never really understood. Um, that's just a personal opinion. But I think, as you say, George, I think meaning is meaning is important for all these things, and uh, anthems yeah. and gestures and all these things have to have meaning then to have an impact on people positively. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm old enough to remember when uh, RT television closed down with the with the playing of the national anthem, and they had a beautiful uh, a beautiful film sequence of, of Irish scenes and. Uh, sunlight through cobwebs and dripping rain off branches and the waves lapping the shore as Aaron Levine was played in an orchestral version at the end of every day's transmission. It, it was actually lovely. Yeah. We've got to take a break. Uh, George Hamilton and Maura Trassen uh, Nikali on the Sunday pay-per-view. And you're welcome back to Off the Ball here on News Talk for your Sunday afternoon. John Duggan sitting in for Joe Malloy until seven. And as well as listening on News Talk, you can watch us on the uh, live streams for Periscope and Twitter at Off the Ball, YouTube, Facebook, and on the OTB Sports app for iOS and Android. Search OTB Sports in your app store to download it. If you haven't done so already, some great stuff on there videos, podcasts, breaking news, a lot more. We're continuing the Sunday pay per view with the RT TV commentator, Lyric FM presenter, the voice of the boys in green, George Hamilton, and the broadcaster and accredited sports psychologist, Maura Tr- and Cali. George, I'm very kind of disheartened to read about Rory McIlroy when I'm picking up the papers again today. He's flattered to deceive, unfortunately, at the PGA Championship. Yet again, yet again. And what a headline that the uh, Irish Mail on Sunday have. McIlroy really is crocked. First drive finds alligator infested water and Rory is sinking again in a major. 10 out of 10 for the sub who came up with that combination. It's just uh, another sad story about Rory who seems to be going through these cycles uh, of Mara Krasik could maybe explain it better but he gets himself into a frame of mind that tells him he's going to be all right this week and then it comes to Thursday and Friday and and he's not all right Um, and it's only happened the once that he was all right Uh, and I'm just wondering about you know his his personal circumstances have changed uh, domestically he's happily married child and, and different circumstances to what they were when he was on tour and had nothing to concentrate on on the golf and He's he just there always seems to be something. It's like the waterbed. You push down in the one corner and it pops up in the other. <laughs> like the other headline in the in the in the back in the page in the, the two pages that spread that features Rory McElroy says Rory says, I have not played par fives well enough. You know, and so if, if it's not one thing, it's the other. And it just seems and I don't know why and I don't know enough about golf to be able to offer an opinion, proper opinion, but it just seems to me uh, that he has lost some spark that he had before. The talent is still there. Uh, but it seems to be that last percentage point that he just can't switch it on anymore. And so there's the disappointment of ending up among the alligators. Like technically, you can fix it. But more said this to me, it must be something to do with the mentality of, of the way he's approaching his game. Well, we're going to assume it is, but we don't know. And this is the caveat I put on whenever anybody asks me about anyone's mentality or in any kind of sport. We don't know because we're not in there and we're not in his group and we're not embedded in his backroom team. So we don't know. Uh, But what I will say is that I've noticed in the comments he's made over the last year or two, there's always been something to blame. And it's only in the last few months where it's his own play that's being blamed. Like I remember last year, obviously, when there was golf happening and there was no crowds. I can't remember now which course he was at, but he was saying, you know, oh, I just felt I wasn't getting energy because there was no crowd there. Whereas a few years previously, he was at an event 
and he was being distracted by the crowd. So then I'm thinking, is this guy getting his motivation from external factors instead of what's motivating him intrinsically, if that makes sense? Now, that's just me making wild speculation because, as we all know, all athletes and all managers and all coaches will go out to tell lies to media anyway in whatever way they feel that will protect them or whatever. They will only tell what they think will benefit themselves, to be honest. So we're making assumptions based off interviews. And I do think, though, that what George said is very interesting as well about, you know, his life has changed a lot. Maybe golf is not his number one priority more, and that's okay. Yeah. Maybe he doesn't feel the need to say that. Maybe Just because we want it. him to doesn't mean, yeah, he has to live his life. And also, he's way. in a different field as to when, when he first yeah. began playing all those years ago. Golf is more competitive now. Maybe that bothers him. Maybe he was better off younger when there was less competition. There's more competition now. I, you know, obviously Tiger Woods was in his heyday back in the day, but you know what I mean? There's, there's, you know, the top two, three, four players in golf changes every weekend at tournaments. So maybe that's a factor. There's so many multifaceted factors, but it is fascinating. Golf is one of the loneliest games in the world. Oh my God, like four or five days out there that kind of pressure, physical pressure, often places really, really warm, mental pressure. And to stay in that zen zone from Thursday to Sunday, it's hard going. And that's why Phil Mickelson, who's 50 years of age, is meditating at the moment. He's not really answering more than two or three questions after each round. He's a 54-hole leader at a major. The Sunday papers are not going to have this, George. They're not going to have it in time because it was late last night when it finished. But this is a remarkable story. Julius Boris in 1968 was the oldest major champion of 48. Obviously, athletes are fitter now, they're stronger, but this would be some story for 2021. Wouldn't it just, uh, I mean, I find it hard to get my head around it because you, you see what, uh, we mentioned the science in the context of our discussion about, about soccer earlier on in the conversation. Uh, when you see the science that's brought to bear now in, in the world of golf, and you, you think where Mickelson would have started off and where he's come from, and even even physically, his body's not going to be able to to do the things that the younger golfers are able to do to to get themselves into prime prime condition uh, to play their four rounds of golf at a major. You know, I I I just find it absolutely astonishing that Phil Mickelson is in the lead at this point and is actually you know really in contention to do this uh, and and fly a flag for us older folk because it just seems beyond beyond the possible uh, in the 21st century that that something like this could be happening. That's great. Great story. And you're right. We don't know for for certainty, Moratrasa, what is going on with Rory McIlroy, whether it's his swing, whether it's his mind. But it just there's always one thing that's a little bit out. And you're just thinking, this guy's so talented. You just want him to just come through and start winning majors again because we, we, we admire his talent so much. And that's we're fans. We're fans as yeah. well as, as Irish people. We, we want Rory yeah. to be winning majors. We don't want him to be playing the power fives the way he's playing them this week and hitting the ball in the water. No, we, we want him to succeed. And part of that is because he blazed through as such a young man and also because he had the Irish connection as well, obviously. you know. So you want to cheer on your own. But as well as that, I think whatever it is when it comes to sporting stars, Rory McIlroy has it. So therefore, that means the spotlight is always going to be on him. You know, there's a few golfers out there, whenever they're playing, we're going to be saying, how's he getting on? Rory McIlroy is one of them. Obviously, Tiger Woods, when he's fit, and obviously, you know, when he's not injured and that kind of stuff, people want to see how he's getting on. So I think perhaps some of this is also to do with that weight of the spotlight. Some people carry it well, some people don't. And that spotlight's been on Rory for so long. It, it went from no criticism whatsoever to scathing criticism to what's going on. It'd take a very strong mind to be able to block that out and just, you know, think about his par fives. Yeah, he's not, he's not. He's not the only one. Sorry, John. He, he's not the only one who's had this this issue, and it's, it's affected others in different ways. Yesterday was the seventy fifth and seventy fifth birthday of the late George Best, and uh, there is the prime example of somebody who couldn't manage to keep the career going because there was so much pressure on him and it, and it just all folded. 
And we think of another uh, from up north, uh, Alex Higgins in snooker. I see the uh, the mail has got a, a big piece on Dennis Taylor, the snooker icon, reflecting happily on a career that's surpassed his expectations, which I think is relevant because Dennis Taylor with his, his upside down glasses went in there to do his best and see where it took him. Whereas a George Best or a Rory McIlroy or an Alex Higgins know they can do it. And then what happens? Uh, and in, in George Best's case, it, it all went horribly wrong. He he spent too much money on, what did he say, wine, women and fast cars and I squandered the rest. Where did it all go wrong? Was the... Was the was, <laughs> yes, was yes. The, was it the... the, the... But there, I mean, that, that's... We seem to be... we You know, it, it, it just seems to be a thing with certain sportsmen. And I think probably Rory uh, has, has shouldered the, the weight of expectation very well. And if he could just get that full house... Uh, then I think the, the 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 whole thing could change again. Yeah, the and Masters, he, he would yeah. be a yeah, he would be he would be uh, a golfer. Of course, he'd be under pressure for every in every tournament. He's under pressure, but there wouldn't be this. When is he going to get the fourth one? When is he going and to I do think, it? it? I think I think as well another factor in that as well, George. I think you're bang on there. And the other thing as well is that you know maybe when Rory was younger, he was being managed. You know, he had coaches, he had swing coaches, he had parents, he had family. You know, guiding him. Whereas Possibly maybe in the last few years, he's had to become his own independent source and, you know, get rid of coaches, bring in new coaches, you know, think of a new caddy, but get a new caddy, you know, all these type of things come in. And if you're not used to doing that from day one, like you just used the Taylor example there, who was going in and doing the best he could, whereas people were always giving Rory all the tools he needed to get to that point. Maybe that adjustment took a few years as well, you know. I mean, becoming a grown-up is hard and becoming a grown-up under the spotlight is really hard, as George Best found out to his detriment. Well, you would find Rory McIlroy went very quickly from chipping balls into a washing machine on the telly show to being on a private jet. Whereas Dennis Taylor was a world champion there, I think, at 36. Padraig Carrington was a major winner at 36. They went through a long slog at their yeah. profession to get to a point where they were actually mature. I'm not saying Rory McIlroy is immature, but the, he was in thrust into it by, the, by his genius at an mm. early stage. And yeah, I think, George, you're right. I think if he does win the Masters, then you complete the set. Then it's easier. The questions stop. And then he might have the freedom to win more but I was yeah. just expecting him yeah. to do better this week than he has um, good, good, phrase, good phrase there you used John good, good phrase you used I, I, I have to commend you the freedom to win more yeah yeah um, I, I was speaking to Cleena Foley on the panel last week and I was talking about medals why don't we win medals at the Olympics and then she says well no the Olympics is not about winning medals and there's a lovely story in the Sunday Independent uh, Mortrasa about uh, a lady who's qualified to, to run the marathon in Tokyo yeah, a woman, Aoife Cook from Cork, um, an amazing personal story. And uh, is right in one sense, you know, the Olympics aren't about medals, they're about personal stories. The medals are the, the cherry on top, probably heartbreaking for people who are in medal contention and don't make them, but that's another story. Um, Aoife Cook um, was a runner for years. Uh, she lost, she won and then lost a US athletic scholarship due to a bone condition, osteopenia, which is the sister of osteoporosis. It basically means your bones are soft and... Uh, she thinks uh, that this comes about. She has it here. Uh, I'll quote her here. I found out I had the low bone density. I decided there was no point in continuing, so I took a decent spell out. I was still able to do easy running. It was the hard sessions that caused her to flare up. It took six years to sort it out. It was likely to have been caused by a combination of diet and maybe overtraining was on when I was in America. She was probably I was probably not taking care of my health as much as I should have been, given what I was putting my body through. So she was out and running for years. And at the age of 27, she made her comeback in 2015. And then her career stalled again in 2018. And then in 2019, she began working with a new coach. And before she knew it, she was able to speed up her times. And she's now qualified for Tokyo, despite all the struggles she had in the last year trying to find a race to qualify, which is a struggle so many athletes around the world had. But I mean, it's so, 
tragic that it's still happening. Thankfully, I think coaches and sports scientists are more educated these days to protect athletes from themselves because there's so many, I can tell you now, there's so many women still running around the world who are having symptoms like this and they're continuing to train because they want to be lean, they want to be thin, they want to be fast, they want to perform. And um, it is causing untold damage to women around the world. And thankfully, Aoife has not only survived to tell the tale, but has beaten all the odds. And she's going on the plane to Tokyo. It'll be uh, in Sapporo because it's not going to be as hot up there. Because um, uh, one thing that has not been commented upon or spoken about with all the Olympics speculation, whether go ahead or not go ahead, is the heat. It's going to be absolutely roasting there in July and August. Um, Lizzie Lee ran a marathon in Rio at 36 years of age and there's a maturity I think to women marathon runners um, I was even watching John Tracy when he was beaten uh, by Car- Carlos Lopez uh, in 84 he was 37 years of age uh, but it does say a lot George about the Corinthian spirit of just being able to get there and that's enough almost and then whatever else happens happens Yeah we, we, I think we're, we're lucky in Ireland in, in our relationship with the Olympics because of just that because every once in a while somebody will come along starting with the uh, well, I say starting with there was there was the famous Ronnie Delaney uh, story in, in Melbourne in 1956. A load Bob Callahan had, had had done it in 32 uh, before him. But you know we we have a, a relationship with the Olympics where we uh, almost getting the Olympics is the prize, and then if it goes on from there, it becomes e- even more uh, of a, of a big deal. And, and so we we can ride a wave in a way that. Uh, bigger countries can't because they're always expecting to be at the top of the medal table and there are people to do really well. And I think back to uh, another Olympic uh, episode, uh, which funnily enough uh, involves another from uh, up north, uh, Mary Peters, originally from Liverpool, of course, but how she won her gold medal by beating the German in the Heidi Rosendahl in the, in the Munich Olympics in 1972 against all the odds. And she wasn't expected uh, to come out on top, but yet she did. I mean, athletes from Northern Ireland tend to uh, tend to um, look at and target something like the Commonwealth Games because they know there they have a real chance because the standard isn't so high. Whereas in the Olympic Games, it's it's virtually the global championships. And there was Mary Peters. I remember it well at the final event of the pentathlon, wasn't it back then? Yes. She actually would nip and tuck uh, with Rosendahl and just did it in the final event. And, and the joy that that brought at the time was just enormous because... Uh, she had achieved against all odds. And I think it, that is the thing for Irish athletes that uh, there are some, of course, who will be good enough uh, to take gold medals, uh, but there are others uh, for whom the taking part will be the most important thing. And can there be anything better than being selected and qualifying for qualifying for and being selected to compete at the Olympic Games? I mean, that, that just has to be something extra special. And to walk behind that flag, that'd be key. Um, Arsenal... Mm. Um, <laughs> if I think as a Spurs fan that Tottenham have problems Arsenal have problems nearly as, oh my as bad goodness. and a, yeah, a, a lot yeah, of in the, Patrick Vieira met uh, Daniel Ek or he's spoken to him anyway about the, this potential yeah. takeover this was a bit of, a, a, bit of a, a, a damp squib of an article really when I, I, I saw it and I thought whoa Arsenal have lost their identity it's very sad to see they deserve so much more than this and when I was suggesting that, that this would be a good topic well I still think it's a good topic because uh, of the, I mean, Eamon Sweeney's been on it as well saying Arsenal have to accept that if Arteta came in and was given a, a, a bye ball uh, last season this season it's been all his own work and Arsenal have ended up in a desperate situation. Uh, but it, I, I was disappointed when I read the, the the interview with Patrick Vieira because he didn't really say very much. He just said, you know, we, we Dennis Bergkamp, Thierry Henry and I, uh, we feel for Arsenal. We were part of the invincible team of 2004 and it's all gone wrong now. Uh, and he says, and Daniel Ek, I find somebody who really wanted to build something simple around the fans. And what, what I find more, more intriguing 
uh, was the, the piece by the member of the Arsenal Supporters yes. Trust Board, Tim Payton, uh, on the same two-page spread, where he said, this is just a farce. I've had more time with Boris Johnson than I have with the Cronkies, the owners of Arsenal. At a Downing Street meeting, I outlined to the Prime Minister some of the issues we face. An owner who will not speak to us, despite pledging to do so. An owner who compulsively took shares with fans who'd owned them for generations. An owner who runs the club for profit, not custodianship, as the decision to join the Super League proved. To his credit, the Prime Minister grasped this and told the fan groups present that clubs and their fans are national assets that form part of the country's social fabric. Now, we know who Boris is and we know that he can uh, say what fits the fits the moment. Uh, but the point was, uh, he met these fan groups uh, and the owners are at, are at one remove. And think of Henry, what's his name, John Henry's uh, video with the, with, the, with the vase of roses beside him saying how sorry he was to the Liverpool fans. I mean, it's, it, they, they are so removed from what the football fans want and what it's all about. And I think, you know, the German model is spoken of, the 50 plus one, where the fans are represented. Of course, the money men have to have the final say because it's their money. But by the same token, they are. Boris said the right thing. National assets football clubs here there everywhere uh, and they shouldn't be the playthings of rich guys trying to make more money the ground is shifting under their feet though with the pandemic i think uh yeah. has has brought it home that um the world has changed and uh people are are now going to use their voice and it was interesting what you said with george about that that was the better part absolutely because the ownership model doesn't change any new owners not necessarily improvement absolutely right um but it's the accountability that the fans want over agms financial information voting rights um, independent directors to having a little bit of a veto as it were over over the running yeah. of a club that they feel that they own in their spirit uh, regardless of who uh, which faceless person that they can't meet does own it uh, we're running out of time yeah. uh, Maura Trassa do you want to pick out a story briefly that uh, is worth further investigation perhaps Oh, I think definitely if you're into nostalgia, I gave him a shout out. I didn't get a chance to talk about it today. But definitely if you're into nostalgia, go and read Jason Byrne's interview with Shane Ryan in the Irish Sun. And also the Dennis Taylor piece is lovely as well. The Mail on Sunday. I know we touched on it briefly, but if you're, love, if you, if you're a fan of reading the Sunday papers, get them. And George, anything that you want to point yourself towards? Well, I know what, what, I, did, what I did want to, to make yeah. the point about the Sunday Independent has had a relaunch recently. And the, the quality of the photography right through the sports section, and the, the, the images jump off the page. It's a, a lot of GAA in it this week, obviously, because it's all restarted. But the, page after page, there are action shots. The particular favourite of mine is the one from the Athletic Grounds of Tyrone beating beating Armagh. It's taken from the terrace behind the goal. And it just it, it just captures the Athletic Grounds in Armagh, a sparsely, uh, a sparsely uh, occupied stand, all in Armagh orange. Uh, and a goal, uh, be uh, well, a shot on goal. It's a penalty, I think, actually. I it is, yeah, I was there last night. Morgan saving. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Uh, that's the only <laughs> I, missed the, I missed the caption because it's in the picture. Um, I was looking elsewhere for it. But yeah, that you know, I, the photography is just great. And I say 10 out of 10 to the Indo for what they've done with their revamp. Uh, it, it really is now a, a fabulous uh, tabloid sports section in presentation Agreed. as well as in content. Well, yeah, and it makes for my small hands much easier as well. Broadsheets are not a small girl's friend. <laughs> <laughs> and the folding, the folding's good. I always like the folding and, and crumpling yeah. it up and making a complete mess of it. More um, trashing you, Cali, George Hamilton. Thanks so much for giving us a great Sunday. Listen, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Gorimila Thank you very much, John. Okay, that's the Sunday paper review with uh, George and Maura Trassa, which you'll be able to get on the podcast later on on the OTB Sports app. Um, just to let you know, in terms of Gaelic games, Dublin are playing Kerry and they're into the second half. Let's get an update on this now uh -huh. from Paddy Andrews. Is seen a bit of 
Hi, Jan. Uh, Scoreline of 3-7 for Dublin, uh, 12 points for Kerry. A four-point lead for Dublin, 47 minutes gone. Um, Kerry have made a couple of changes. They took out uh, Killian Spillane at half-time, pretty ineffective. He didn't get a score in the first half, replaced him with Tommy Walsh. So that kind of tells you what their idea of a game plan to try and let the ball in long to Tommy Walsh. They've also made two big changes, taking off David Moore and Paul Ghini, two of the more experienced players. Just did not get into the game, didn't have that athleticism, uh, and were struggling. So... I say Dublin lead by four. David Clifford has just clipped over another point for Kerry. That's three points in a row. It's back to three points now. And David Clifford has now scored five points, four from play and one free off Michael Fitzsimons. Dublin haven't scored in the last ten minutes. Kerry creeping back into it, and it's a three-point lead for Dublin. Forty-eight minutes gone. Can you see a close finish, Paddy? I, I, I ten minutes ago, I definitely didn't. Dublin were well on top, but like I say, Kerry, couple of changes. They brought in some new legs, uh, and they've got three points in a row, and they're starting to get back into the game and back on top Dublin need to score to settle themselves down uh, but it's three points at the minute for Dublin OK thanks Paddy Andrews we'll get a full time from you uh, during the next hour just let you know Galway won seven Roscommon eight points at Pierce Stadium that match also had a two o'clock uh, throw in um, we have Kildare seven points Clare four points in Division 2 South uh, round two that is a half time score and elsewhere what have we got in the hurling uh, Kerry uh, 124 Meath 24 points in Tralee that is a full time Carla 110 Offaly 111 another win for Offaly at Netwatch Cullen Park and Wicklow uh, nine points uh, down 12 that is a half time score uh, from Ockram don't forget after uh, the break we got more Lawrence Donegan and Brian Kerr I'm going to build up then to the match between Liverpool and Crystal Palace live commentary of the final day of the Premier League season with Stephen Doyle and Brian Kerr don't go away The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation. 